This is an ABC podcast. Burning out has become a phrase thrown around almost as often as anxiety. But being stressed and overworked is not actually burnout. There's more to it. An increase in that sense of overwhelm. So my my body gets very tired. I I start to lose motivation. I start to lose enthusiasm for coming to work. Work is like my job is something that I love. So a, a loss of excitement and enthusiasm for that is is definitely a flag. I'm Lisa Leong, and on this working life, why we individuals can't fight burnout alone things have to change in our organisations. This is what the pioneer of burnout theory and research has found. So there's a lot of self-care, coping, all of these kind of things being talked about as cures or prevention of burnout, and they're not. Coping helps you deal with the stressors. It doesn't change the stressors. Christina Maslach, Professor of Psychology and Researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, has been studying burnout for 40 years, and she actually kind of gave it the official name. It's Christina's measurement tool that's been used by workplaces and the World Health Organization to assess if someone's burning out, the Maslach Burnout Inventory. You're one of the first researchers to understand and develop the term burnout. How did this all come about, Christina? It was being used in a popular sort of way during interviews I had. And so finally, I was really trying to find out what's going on. But I'm the daughter of an engineer uh, who did work in the space program as well. And, you know, we heard about burnout all the time. Rocket boosters burn out and light bulbs burn out and ball bearings, you know, burn out. The research really focused on how we understand our emotional feelings. How do we cope with really strong emotional stressors when it's important that we be calm, cool, collected, and, you know, solve problems when everything is falling apart around us. So I decided, well, I'll go out and I'll talk to people who I think probably deal with these kinds of issues. Is this when you labeled it burnout or started using that term or, yeah? One evening, I just happened to be at a dinner for new faculty, new, actually new people at the University of California, Berkeley. And I was sitting next to somebody and we're chatting. How are you? How are you? What do you do? I described a little bit of what I was hearing in the, in the interviews that I had just done that afternoon. And this woman turned to me and said, oh my gosh, I don't know what you call it, but in poverty law, legal services, which I just left, we called it burnout. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So when I would then end my interviews and ask, do you have a name for it? Do you talk about it with other people? No, 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 no. You know, the attached concern? No, 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 no. What about burnout? Yes, that's it. That's it. And it's the term just somehow is such a vivid sort of imagery, yeah, I think. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And people just immediately grabbed onto it and said, yes, that describes it. That's, it. that's the word. But the downside is that it's so evocative that people use it to mean all kinds of things. Like, I'm bored, you know, burned out on Pilates, I've got to get into, you know, something else, or haven't had a good idea all week, it's just like I'm burned out, there's nothing coming in. And people use it for lots of other phenomena in life, like parent burnout, and marital burnout, and pandemic burnout. You have your name on the main tool used to measure burnout in workplaces, the Maslach Burnout Inventory. Talk me through it. And did you create it for this very purpose of maybe clarifying what you mean by burnout? What we found actually in all of this work was that 
thinking that burnout would be a sort of a single thing, you know, and you could measure it as being, you know, frequent and high or, or not so much. It actually broke into three interrelated components. So burnout isn't just exhaustion. Christina's research found three factors, stress, cynicism, and then self-blame. And those three components put it first in the stress response category. Exhaustion is one of the components, and that's the stress response. That's a normal human response to threats and challenges. But it didn't just stay there. Uh, it had these two other things, which I think is what differentiates it from other kinds of stress responses. One of them is what we now sort of talk about as cynicism and distancing and, and disengagement. This is where people at this point are saying, take this job and shove it. You know, you've soured on the job, how they're running the thing, what you're having to do. And what you end up doing, and this is the important point, it's not just that you're getting really negative about the job and everything about it and the people and the policies and whatever. You are not doing your very best. You're going to do the bare minimum. What is it I least have to do and get out of here and still get my paycheck? The quality of the job performance begins to change with burnout, where you are going to the minimum rather than the best. Um, I mean, people will brag about being exhausted. Oh, I stayed up all night to get this, you know, da 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 done. Yay for me, you know, but you don't brag about hating the job and doing less than you should. It's like losing hope. Yeah, yeah. But the third component was it's not only you're getting negative about the job, you're beginning to say, what's wrong with me? Um, why can't I handle this? What's wrong with me? Why are other people not having a problem? Maybe I made a mistake. I shouldn't be in this career and feeling a failure and feeling you haven't done good enough, uh, hasn't been perfect enough. So the stress response of exhaustion, because it is a response to chronic job stressors, then this cynicism about a negative response to the job and this sense of ineffectiveness, a negative sense about myself. So that trifecta, if you get all three of those, uh, that's really what we're talking about is the burnout experience. Many people talk about being overloaded and exhausted and tired and can't get, you know, oh my God, I can't deal with the workload. But I still love the job and this is a great place to be and I think I'm doing okay hanging in there. So if you're just stressed and overworked, you're not actually burning out. We overuse this term. With burnout, it's really important to look at what is happening to people's sense of self and also what it is they're doing and what they are contributing on the job and how they're affecting everybody else at work, at home, uh, and the rest of it. Christina, the Maslach burnout inventory was first developed in 1981. So how has that changed or how has our thinking changed around burnout uh, since then? 40 years ago, right? Yeah. We focused primarily uh, at that time on first responders, human services, so we're talking healthcare and social workers and people then started writing in and saying, hey, wait a minute, did you talk to teachers? So we began to do studies to expand and find that there was a very parallel phenomenon. And what we were finding is the same three basic components, no matter where we measured it in terms of, of country and where we measured it in terms of occupation. Nurses in Poland were showing the same three kind of factors as nurses in Canada and in the United States and Australia and, you know, whatever. What has not changed is that basic sort of three interrelated factors that is now recognized by the World Health Organization in their definition of burnout. 
responding to chronic job stressors that have not been successfully managed. We are talking about chronic stressors, not occasional ones. If you're going to prevent burnout or reduce the risk of burnout, you have to manage those stressors. It's not enough to help just tell people, you know, the job is what it is. Stressful, sorry, you've just got to, you know, step up and meet the demands and, you know, work harder. So there's a lot of self-care, coping, all of these kind of things being talked about as cures or prevention of burnout, and they're not. Coping helps you deal with the stressors. It doesn't change the stressors. That is such an important point, Christina, because it feels like burnout has been painted as an individual's issue, potentially more than it is uh, an organizational issue. So you're you saying it's a bit of both? It's a both and. I'm not saying don't cope with stress, but that's not the solution. That's just helping you get by, you know, for the moment. There has been a real tendency to view it as an individual illness, disease. Mm. So a mental health issue. You know, people talk about symptoms and diagnosis and you should be seeing a psychiatrist and getting medication, you know, to help you sleep at night and all of this kind of thing, which is saying your problem, you better do something about it. Those might be the effects of dealing with these chronic job stressors, but simply coping with those effects isn't changing the cause to make it so that there's a better fit, a better match between what people are trying to do and hope to achieve and the conditions under which they're working. What we need to look at is not just what makes them productive, but what makes them tick, what makes them motivated, what makes them psychologically, you know, ready to do creative things. In your new book that comes out in November, you write about burnout shops in Silicon Valley where tech startups blatantly advertised that they would overwork staff with the carrots of shares and future wealth. The burnout shop was, we are going to own you 24-7 and get everything we can out of you. And when you're finally ah, burned out and can't do any more, you're done. You're gone. You leave. And once I began to hear a burnout from the people I interviewed, I was thinking, okay, so what's going, what, why is it a burnout shop? What is, what is going on? And what we have found in our research is that there are six, at least six qualities. One is workload. The demands are really, really high. The resources, time, people, equipment, whatever, are very low. It's almost impossible to get those done in a good way in, and on time and all the rest of it. The second one is control. How much autonomy do you have to make changes, course corrections, invent new things, you know, try and do it in a better way, or are you just shut up and just do what you're told? Uh, this third area has to do with reward, which we thought would involve, you know, pay and benefits, but it, not as much as recognition. People care that you were there, pat you on the back, say thank you. Fourth area I've already alluded to, and this is the work climate, the environment in the hospital, the school, the tech company, the bank. And is it supportive? People can trust each other, help each other out, figure out how to problem solve. Or is it that socially toxic culture of fear, a culture of fear where you do not dare say no to your boss? Fairness is the fifth one. Whatever the rules, whatever the policy, whatever the practices that we have here, are they being administered fairly? Or is it rigged in some sense that the only people who get ahead are the ones who are 
cheating or, you know, somehow brown nosing with their bosses or, you know, not doing the good work. And unfairness can breed so much cynicism. And then finally, the last one, and sometimes this is the ultimate one for people, is values or meaning. People want to feel that proud of what they're doing, that I'm doing something that's worthwhile, that it has some benefit, it has a contribution. Um, And when people are in situations where there are value conflicts, where they feel they're being forced into doing things that just strike them as wrong or difficult, so difficult that I don't want to have to say people, no, you can't be in the room to see your grandfather pass away um, because of infection. So I'm going to turn you away. All of these things are just like shredding people's sense of meaning and value in the work that they're doing. And in some cases, they're just saying, I can't do this anymore. I mean, it's eroding my soul. Okay. So you found these six requirements for burnout. How do they interact I remember talking to the CEO of one group when he thought, oh, people will complain about workload and they'll complain about not getting paid enough. Turned out none of those two areas popped up as bad ones. Fairness was a bad one. And he was shocked and was like, how? And first he's thinking reward. Well, maybe we need to have a bigger bonus for that award, you know, that you do something special. And I had to say no, because people weren't complaining about the money that you get from this award. They were saying it was unfair the people who got it and the people who didn't get it, who should have gotten it. I mean, and it was the big sore issue in that organization and linked to burnout issues. And they went around and said, okay, let's change this and make it, make it better and figure out how to be a fair process for, you know, doing something special to recognize people who've done something special. And that organization keeps doing their annual checkups all the time to find out what's our new issue that we need to pay attention to. So they can, you know, it's possible to identify something that just really annoys people. It's the pe- they could talk about it as pebbles in your shoe because they're not always these big, huge, humongous issues. It'll be the stuff that drives you crazy all the time, that doesn't work, that hasn't, nobody's paying attention to it, that they don't think it's worth it. One of the mantras I used to hear all the time, and I think it's still around, sorry, we have to do more with less. So we've got more contracts and more patients, but we can't hire any more people. We can't bring in any more, you know, staff or equipment or whatever. You're just going to have to ramp it up. It's so common. So what do we do with that scenario, Christine? <laughs> you need to communicate with everybody about it so that you know that this is one thing that people want to have happen as opposed to something that's imposed on them. Um, so I often hear about from people in different organizations like, Ah, well, the CEO said he wanted to do something to, you know, be healthy and help us, you know, have healthy lives and whatever, and put a volleyball court on the top of the roof of our building. (laughs) How many people have the time, the effort to go up to there and play volleyball? Not many, if any. (laughs) And all the money that had to be spent to make that happen, everybody was ticking off. I have 10 things I could say if you could put the money over here to change this process, or could we have the equipment over here so we're not running down the hall and leaving our patients alone? People ask, well, what are the signs of burnout? And I'm saying, well, what, I mean, what are you, why are you asking me that question? Well, I want to know how people are feeling. I said, ask them. You don't look for some, oh my gosh, you know, they're weeping at their desk or they leave early or, you know, all that kind of thing. In terms of making 
you know, some improvements that will help make it a better environment for people to do their job in any one of these six areas is actually to collaborate with everybody who's going to have to live with it. What effect has the pandemic had on workplaces, Christina? One of the other mantras that I've always heard from people about the workplace and the work is the saying, the job is what it is. You know, you just have to put up with it. And you're the one that has to keep pace. You're the one that has to figure out how to do it better. You're the one, you know, et cetera. Pandemic came along and crushed that into the dust. You know, the job is not what it is and you just have to live with it. The job had to change all over the place in many ways. Sometimes changes were made that were great. I was really interested in in reading in your book about the term civility in the workplace. Can you give us an example of when this was missing and what happened? Right, right. Basically, what we're finding is, is civility is how do people treat each other on the job, you know, at home, whatever. But how do they treat colleagues? How do they talk to clients, patients? And civility really is about having, rather than just thinking about me, you're thinking about the other people as well. And so you're more polite, you're more attentive, you're more empathic, you are trying to figure out what you can do to help people out and make things go well. And assuming that in a reciprocal way, they'll be doing that for you as well. So that you're establishing kind of good relationships with people. doesn't have to be your best friend necessarily, but you treat people in a civil, dignified way respectful manner. I remember talking to a group of nurses and they were complaining about that civility was or incivility was one of the biggest problems they faced on the job. And that's from their fellow nurses. How did it play out for them? Snarky comments, putting each other down, being insulting. Even when you don't say something or if you say something that sort of sounds passive aggressive. <laughs> Yeah. When the nurses told me, and when I said, what's the, what's the biggest sign for you of incivility? They said, rolling the eyes. Tell people they can't roll their eyes at each other, you know. <laughs> Can you share another story of, I guess, in moving on one of the factors to improve the situation for an organization, Christina? Another organization was an um, academic institution, and this was sort of the main departmental office. Um, in a large university. And this is where everybody went to pick up their mail. This is where all the secretarial administrative staff worked, where the staff managers worked. This is where you got supplies. This is where visitors came. This is where people came to bring the leftover pizza from their lab meeting and, you know, all of this kind of thing. So it was busy, lots of things going on. And some of those were fun and nice. But what was happening is that the staff were saying, we're not getting our work done and we're having to take it home or we're having to stay late after the office is closed to try and finish. So they had a workload issue and in some sense feeling out of control. So finally, the manager decided, let's wait a minute, you know, we're, we're having problems here with people not being able to get their work done. They had a whole kind of retreat to sort of sit and talk about it. And after a while, they realized in discussing it that the workload hadn't improved increased, but the disruptions had increased. So it was it was that you just couldn't get going on anything because people were coming by, oh my gosh, I, I need to get this grant out today. Can you da 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 da, you know, or oh I got a funny joke. I gotta tell you, this is really hilarious, you know, kind of thing. Or did you see the basketball game last night? You know. And what they came up with was 
a solution where the first two hours of the workday, eight to 10 in the morning, the office would be closed. They would be there and they would be working, but the door was locked and nobody was bringing in visitors and nobody could come in and pick up their mail between eight and 10. And they explained why and got everybody on board. And it turned out that's was just what they needed. They got the day off to a great start. And then at 10 o'clock, open the door, people can come in, bring their leftover pizza. And it became standard practice. So it's worked very well. If I'm listening, I'm a leader or manager in an organisation and I am worried about my um, workers. Where do I start, Christina? Talk with them and really get the talking around. Not are you burned out? I mean, nobody has to self-confess to burnout in order to say, could we have a better environment in which to do our job? You know, we should be, that should be sort of uh, job number one. But uh, checking in with people, given the pandemic and given the sort of post-pandemic, but not really and not knowing what we're getting into, et cetera, this is a great time to find out from people what is working, what is not working. It's like a pulse check. Yeah, exactly. Was there something that worked well that we could adopt in a lot of other places. I think managers are in a really critical and important role because they know their people better than a lot of others do above them. They have the unfortunate position of being caught between the upper and the lower. So managers, they have their own burnout. I mean, it's not just the employees. Figure out how to modify the environment that we have more control over it than, you know, we think. Uh, it may not, and a lot of the things that we talk about in the book are not always expensive things to do. They're not always difficult things to do. When I've asked them, what would you like, for, you know, to help with burnout? And that is a mentor. A mentor meaning a safe person, a safe harbor where I can go and talk and ask questions and get feedback and go for help or guidance or, you know, um, and not have it written up as a failing or, you know, everybody's going to know, or I've now, you know, ruined my chance of getting a promotion or a, you know, a good recommendation for another job. The culture has become so competitive, so hustle. Everybody else is, you know, an obstacle in your way, not, not part of your support and, um, and you be support for them. So reflecting on what Christina has said, sounds like addressing burnout at the organisational level, not just at the individual level, is crucial. But what happens when your place of work is resistant? Let's take a look at the Australian context. Someone who's been on the front line of trying to avoid burnout is Tina Mogler in Brisbane. For me, it's very much so an increase in that sense of overwhelm. So my body gets very tired. I start to lose motivation. I start to lose enthusiasm for coming to work. Work is like my job is something that I love. So a loss of excitement and enthusiasm for that is definitely a flag. Tina works as a mental health social worker. It's very inappropriate to take that stuff home and share with family and friends and partners. So it just stays with me. And carrying that stress on your own with uh, no safe place to debrief, talk about things could potentially lead to burnout. If I'm feeling flat and lacking enthusiasm and motivation, that energy definitely comes into the counselling room. Tina worked for a community mental health organisation but left because she was unhappy with the workplace. 
there were many examples of clinicians experiencing burnout in those organisations. How did you pick up on that? So the things that I would see would be cynicism towards the organisation, towards the work, and sometimes those those cynicisms were warranted and, and legitimate, but there was no proactive approach to it. It was more just a constant discussion of the frustrations. I'd see the lost enthusiasm for the work that we did, the lost motivation, just that, that general flatness, lots of sick days you know, regular sick days would would happen. That cynicism that you saw when you were working in that big organisation, how was that dealt with? It was mostly just the individuals around that would notice it. I never really seen any examples of the organisation doing anything about it. And I guess that the way that cynicism would be portrayed is usually just around conversations that just have that constant negative undertone. Without that proactive approach from the person experiencing the cynicism, they essentially would just get ignored. Tina, what did you do next? When I recognised that um, I wasn't actually able to enact change within the organisation that I worked for, I went about figuring out how can I do what I want to do in a way that I want to do it. And I essentially went and started up my private practice. A huge part of my decision to leave uh, the the organisation I worked for was because of job dissatisfaction and workplace culture. And I I did take the proactive approach and, you know, have discussions with management about it with no result. So I I didn't experience burnout, but if I I chose to stay, I absolutely would have. They're really feelings of hopelessness. And if you're working in a a caring profession such as Tina, then you need to have hope. Michelle Newcomb is a social work lecturer at Queensland University of Technology, and she researches burnout in the social care sector. You're instilling hope and the idea of change um, with people. And so if you can't instill a sense of hope with people because you feel so hopeless in what you're doing, then what, what is your option here? So, Michelle, uh, one of the options is to go out by yourself, but what if you're trying to find uh, another organisation that isn't suffering from organisational burnout? Uh, What are some of the happy signs that we can look out for to test whether the next organisation is right for us? Well, it's always good to find other people who are working in those other organisations. And a lot of us in professional roles will know um, other people working for the competitor, for example. And so asking people, well, what is the culture like there? How do people seem in an environment? I always think it's interesting to walk into a workplace and and just note how many people are smiling? Are people happy? Is there a spring in their step? Do they smile? You can feel whether a workplace is happy or not. We can ask questions in interviews or when we're applying for jobs in terms of are there policies around people taking leave, for example? So that's one strategy organisations use is to get people to take their leave on a regular basis, which we know does reduce people's stress at work. But we might also ask about uh, social events that the organisation runs. Uh, what's the investment per person on professional development in an organisation per year? You could even ask an organisation about their retention or attrition numbers. So get a statistic on that. In this role, how long do people usually last? Um, And see what people tell you about that. 
just thinking, Michelle, about that conversation that you might want to have with your manager or leader if you are suspecting that your organisation suffers from burnout. What are some key questions that you could ask? And regardless of the answer, at least you have more data on how to make your next move. An important thing to highlight here is you don't have to have these conversations alone. If you're working in a team or with a group of uh, professionals in the same kind of role, these can be group conversations. So it can feel quite intimidating to have these kind of conversations on your own. So remember, you can do this in a group environment, or you might have suggestions about how you can streamline things, make things more efficient or, or happier, happier things you can do in the workplace. That was Michelle Newcomb from the University of Queensland. She was selected by the ABC to be one of the top five humanities academics to do a media mentorship. Michelle helped us put this episode together. We also heard from social worker Tina Mogler and, of course, Christina Maslach from the University of California, Berkeley. Her new book comes out in November, The Burnout Challenge, Managing People's Relationships with Their Jobs. We made this episode on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri people. This Working Life is produced by Sarah Allerley. She really enjoyed mentoring Michelle Newcomb and Sarah now realises she's just stressed, not actually burning out. (laughs) I'm Lisa Leong and until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.